get going. Chapter 46 of Genesis. And last week, my intention was to finish the chapter <clears throat> and we didn't make it, which is probably no surprise to some of you. But uh, we uh, uh, we were looking that the chapter basically kind of is divided into three sections, as I see it. The first few verses are about Jacob's departure and his family departure from Canaan to Egypt. Uh, and, and Jacob's encounter with God there at Beersheba. And then you have that somewhat lengthy uh, genealogy that lists all the people who went down with Jacob into Egypt. And we talked about that uh, primarily last week. And I, I didn't realize we'd spend as much time on that as we did. And then the end of the chapter, picking up in, uh, in about verse 28, tells us about the arrival of the family in Egypt. And so that's what we want to look at today. We just kind of began to touch on that last week and we ran out of time. So uh, so we don't have a lot of time this morning. We're kind of short on time this morning, but very quickly, is there anything from last week that that stands out to you that you remember that we talked about that you that you'd like to recall or mention? What did, what, what did we talk about last week? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's the idea. It's a, it's a whole unit. It is the family unit. It's it is the it is the beginning of really of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Uh, so it is uh, it is this cohesive unit uh, uh, that goes into Egypt, and yet it's a very small unit compared to the many. Uh, actually, probably two million or so people who come out of Egypt 400 years later. Uh, what else? This was actually two weeks ago, and I don't know if you followed up on it, but we uh, you pointed out how we tend to think so immediate mm-hmm. as opposed to this long-term generational yeah. viewpoint. Yeah. Did you uh, get to talk more? We didn't. We, I don't think we talked any more about that. Yeah. yeah. We talked a little bit last week about uh, the importance of not despising the days of small things. Uh, it was a. It was a small. It was a small group that went down into Egypt, and it's easy to dismiss that. But we see that God is, in the long-term sense, God is doing something great. And, and it is important for us not to despise the day of small things because most of us live our lives, our entire lives, in the days of small things. Uh, and it's important that we not lose sight of the great things that God is, is about doing. Um, we talked a little bit, too, about Judah. We did get into that thing about Judah. Do you remember what we said about Judah? There in verse 28. Yeah. So we have this guy who back in chapter 37 and 38 has so had had just completely lost his way. <laughs> he's uh, he's involved in the conspiracy against Joseph. Uh, he's. Uh, he moves away from the family. He moves in with the Canaanites. He marries a Canaanite woman. He has Canaanite friends. And he's completely lost his way. 
And now we find him here in chapter 46, and he has become the guide to the family. He has been the, the he's the one, he's the go-to guy that father goes to, that Jacob goes to, uh, to lead the family into Egypt. And as we talked about, he's actually the one who leads the family into reconciliation. Joseph is the one who makes reconciliation possible by by the things that he did and the things that he suffered in his life. He's the one who makes reconciliation possible, but Judah is the one who actually leads the way in the family being reconciled. And so it's a tremendous encouragement to every one of us who has ever lost our way. That it's not necessarily the end. It doesn't have to be the end. And it certainly wasn't the end for Judah, and he has a glorious end. And we'll see it gets even more spectacular as we go on. But, well, let's pick up the story then. And we'll start with verse 28, that verse about Judah in chapter 46, and read down through the end of the chapter. And there are, it's just the reunion of Jacob and Joseph, and, and then their arrangements uh, with Pharaoh, the, the, uh, Judah, Joseph beginning to make arrangements uh, for where they're going to live. He says, he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Well, uh, it's a short passage here, but there's actually quite a bit going on and quite a bit for us to think about. We we have uh, Joseph, as soon as he hears that the family is arriving in Goshen, he immediately prepares his chariot and he goes off. It seems most commentators uh, uh, think that, that there's an implication here in the, in the verse of he's, he's really in a hurry. He's in a hurry to get to see his family, but particularly he's in a hurry to go see his father, whom, of course, he has not seen in 22 years. And so, uh, so he goes to meet his father and it's that touching scene there where he comes and as soon as he appears before him, he falls on his neck and he weeps. And then his father makes this statement about, well, now I can die. Uh, I've seen your face and I know that you're still alive. And <clears throat> you kind of wish there was maybe a whole chapter about this reunion. Right? Because it, you know, it, it has to have been uh, just an, an amazingly poignant time, a time of great emotion and great relief and great joy and great pleasure on the part of both of these men, but Scripture just gives it very simply for us, just a very simple description of their coming together. <clears throat> and uh, 
when I think about it, I think, you know, first of all, the thing, one of the things that strikes me is we see Joseph here weeping on his father for a considerable period of time. And, uh, and this is not the first time we've seen Joseph weeping. Actually, we've seen him weeping several times, haven't we? Over and over again. It began when he was sold into captivity, into <coughs> slavery in Egypt and Dotham. And he's crying out. He's pleading with his brothers and he's weeping and he's pleading. And then, uh, and then as the story begins to unfold of his brothers coming to Egypt to get food and stuff, repeatedly we see Joseph weeping. And, uh, and the thing that strikes me about that, I'll just mention in passing, the thing that strikes me about that is, is Joseph has been through all of these difficulties, all of these hardships, all of these mistreatments on the, in the hands of others, sold into slavery, uh, accused, of, uh, accused of immorality and attempted rape and thrown into prison and forgotten in prison and all. He's all the things that Joseph has been through that would make a man hard and bitter. But Joseph is a man who can still weep. He's a man whose heart is still tender. What is it? What is it that allows a man to go through the things that Joseph has gone through and not get hard and not get cynical? I read a book. Actually, I never even finished the book, and I don't even remember what the book was now. But I, but one chapter in the book sticks out in my mind, and it was titled "The Sin of Cynicism." And we oftentimes think of cynicism as you know, kind of you know, a sophisticated you know, this is the way you know you want to be a little bit of a cynic. But this guy was pointing out that cynicism is a is a is an attitude of arrogance. It's an attitude of pride. And it's a sin. And, uh, and when we live in the world we live in, it's very easy to get cynical, isn't it? But here is this guy, Joseph, with everything he's been through and he's not gotten cynical. But he's still tender and he's still soft and he can still weep. And then, so he comes and it's, he appears before his father and he falls on his neck and he weeps for a long time. And it's kind of interesting. We don't really hear much about... Jacob's response, we don't know whether Jacob wept or not. It seems like perhaps he didn't. <clears throat> but Jacob's response is very interesting too because Jacob says, he says, now let me die. Jacob seems to be obsessed with dying. He keeps coming up over and over again in things that he says. But he says, now let me die because I have seen your face that you are still alive. <clears throat> and what strikes me here is now, this is the first picture that, that we have of Jacob being content. In his whole life, this is a guy who's been struggling and grabbing and grasping and, and, and wrestling with God and you know trying to get the blessing and all of these things that Jacob has been doing for many, many years. And then all the trouble that he's been through and all the anguish he's been through over the last 22 years. It's a, it's a guy... And finally here at this point in his life, 130 years old, and he finally seems content. He says, okay, now I'm satisfied. And what's interesting though is he's 130 here, but he lives for another 17 years. Now what's significant about that? 
What's significant about that number 17? That's how old Joseph was when he was sold into slavery, isn't it? So it's like God just says, okay, Jacob, what I'm going to do for you is you had 17 years with your son before he was sold into slavery. Now I'm going to give you another 17 years. And he has another 17 years. And when you think about that, five years of that was, of course, the famine. But he gets to see Joseph not only lead Egypt through the remainder of the famine, but he gets to see Joseph as, you know, of course, we don't know what all Joseph did after the famine, but presumably he helps then Egypt recover from the famine and get back on its feet and whatever. And Jacob has the satisfaction of watching his son Joseph uh, over this next 17 years as he leads Egypt through these circumstances. And, and I, I just think it's, it's just so much like the Lord, isn't it? God is so good to Jacob here. He's so good to Jacob. And God's been good to Jacob all the way through. You know, He told him at the beginning at Bethel, He said, I'm going to be with you. And He's been with him all the way. Well, but there's something else going on here in this reunion that the narrator, the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the narration, I think gives us a little signal of something really profound that's going on here in this reunion. And it's by the choice of the words that he uses in these two verses as he describes this reunion. And, and the, the key word is the word he says, he appeared before him. That's kind of an interesting way to express their reunion, isn't it? When he says, Joseph appeared before him. You know? And it's not, the, it's not necessarily the word I would choose to use if I talked about two people meeting or two people coming together. But he says Joseph appeared before him. And what's particularly interesting is that in the, that in the Hebrew language, that, that word that's translated here, appeared, in Genesis and early Exodus is used several times. But this is the only time that it's used that it is not used in reference to a theophany. In other words, every other time that the word appeared is used, it's in reference to God appearing to man. God appearing to Jacob, or God appearing to Isaac, or God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. And this is the exception to the rule. This is the only time that the passage that this word is used in, in which it's not referring explicitly to a theophany. Okay? But what's also interesting is that he uses uh, in these in these two verses, he uses a couple other words that, uh, although they're, they are used in various other ways throughout the text, uh, are used in reference to theophanies. And and uh, one of them is in uh, in verse uh, 29, where he says uh, that he says Joseph went up to Goshen and that phrase went up is used in in a couple of the theophanies to refer to God going up after the theophany. God goes up or went up into heaven or whatever, returned into heaven. And so uh, so that phrase is also used in reference to theophanies. And then and then in the next verse, when jo- when Jacob says, I have seen your face, uh, that's, that's also a phrase that's used in several of the theophanies. This idea of having seen the face of God or being in the presence of and seeing the face of God. And so it's, it, it seems like that, that in, in choosing to use these particular terms, 
the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us here that there's something something even greater going on here than, than just the reunion of this father and this son. Now, we have these two guys coming together and, and in, in one sense, although they're father and son and they dearly love one another, you couldn't have two more opposite kinds of people, could you? You've got Jacob whose life is a life of mistakes. <laughs> His biography is a life, is a story of mistakes and, and, and uh, making bad judgments and bad decisions and conflict and struggle and, and, uh, and, and all that sort of thing. And then you have Joseph. And, and Joseph is a guy who, who, who just seems to do it right every time. You know, every, every time he's confronted with an option or a choice, he seems to make the right decision. And uh, it doesn't mean that his life isn't full of conflict and difficulty, but, but he's a guy who, who seems to have, to have his life together and he, he knows what's right to do and he does what's right regardless of the cost. And, and so in one sense, you have these two guys coming together, father and son, being re- reunited here and you couldn't have two pe- people who are too different. But there's one thing they have in common. The one thing these two guys have in common is that both men walk in the presence of God. God told Jacob when he left, uh, <clears throat> when he left and he headed up uh, for Padanaran and he stopped at Bethel, and God met him there. He didn't know God was going to be there, but God met him there. And God said, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to go up with you and I'm going to bring you back. And then remember, just, uh, just as he was leaving to go down to Egypt, he stops at Beersheba and God says, I'm going with you down into Egypt. I'm going to bring you back. So here we have Jacob is a man who just wherever he goes, God is present with him. And we know that's true of Joseph, too. Even the Egyptians saw that in Potiphar. It says one of the reasons that Potiphar selected Joseph uh, for the job that he gave him to do was because he saw that God was with him. So you have two guys whose lives really are so different in many ways. Two men whose lives are so different and and. And one guy whose life is marked by a lot of wrong decisions and mistakes, and that sort of, and another guy who seemed, you know, to be an, an uh, exemplary in how he lived his life. But the thing they have in common is they both walked in the presence of God. And so there is a real sense in which, when these two men come together, it really is a theophany. These two men come together and what's happening here is, is that, that God, who has been present with both of these men, has brought about this reunion. This is the work of God. This is God revealing Himself. This is God disclosing Himself. When we read this story, we're seeing the appearance of God. Not in the sense of a strict theophany where God actually comes and you know and is visually apparent like He was to to Abraham or to Moses or to Isaac or to Jacob, but in a real sense, you have two guys coming together who always walk in the presence of God, 
And they're coming together by the work and by the accomplishment of God. And when we see them come together, we go, wow, that's God. Well, as I was thinking about this whole thing about these two men and the presence of God in their life, I was thinking, you know, we look at that and we read that and we reflect on that and we think, well, that's a marvelous thing, isn't it? Jacob, here's this guy Jacob and God just says, wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. And Joseph, you know, in worst possible circumstances. Situation far worse than his father ever faced. God's present with him. Everywhere he goes, God's present with him. Whether he's, whether he's sitting in the corner of a dungeon or standing before Pharaoh, God is with him. And we look at that and we read that story and we go, boy, isn't that cool? I wish I could live my life like that. And, and then we go, what have I forgotten? Have I forgotten what Jesus said to His disciples in John chapter 14? When He said, He said, I'm going to go away so that I can send the Comforter. So that He can be with you forever. And how much of our time, how much in our lives... Do we spend our lives, living our lives, thinking about God like He's over there on the couch operating everything by remote control? He's not. Jesus said He would send the Comforter, He would send the Spirit, and He would be with us. In Romans chapter 8, when Paul is writing about this same Spirit, he refers to Him within two verses, he refers to Him as the Spirit of God the Spirit of Christ and Christ. What that means is that you and I, as believers, every day of our lives, walk in the presence of God. And what is so embarrassing and so humiliating is to recognize and realize how much of my day I live my day thinking God is over there somewhere. Or up there somewhere. And what would it do? How would my life be transformed? How would my life be transformed in my relationships with people on a day-to-day basis if I could just remember that God is present with me? He's right here. He's not over there somewhere. He's not out there somewhere. But He is present with me. And, uh, and, the, and the promise of His presence. Remember, when, when, he, when Jesus was getting ready to leave and he was, on the, uh, he was on the mountain and He was getting ready to ascend into heaven and He spoke to His disciples and He gave them the Great Commission there in Matthew 28. Remember, remember what was the promise He gave them? I will be with you always what? Even what? To the end of the age. Okay. Now, he's speaking to the disciples to whom he has just given the commission to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. And 
And, and then he says, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. So what we realize is that the promise of God's presence is a promise that's both a spatial promise and a time promise. It's a promise that says, no matter where we go, God will be with us. And no matter how long it takes, God will be with us. There's no place I can go geographically where I can be away from the presence of God. And there's no, there's no time limit on God's promise of presence with me and with you. He's not going to be present with you for the next five years or so and then you're on your own. But it's a promise to the end of the age. Now, there's an interesting verse and you probably remember it, but I think oftentimes we think about it maybe in, in a little bit different way than, than it was first written. But in Psalm 139, and you're familiar with the psalm, it's the one you know where he talks about being formed in his mother's womb and God knew about all that and everything. But, but in verse 7, the psalmist says something interesting. He says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Now we read that psalm, and oftentimes that psalm is very comforting. But you notice what he says? Where can I flee from your presence? This is the psalmist when he's not doing well with God. This is a psalmist when he, when he wants to get away from God. And so he's trying to figure out, where can I flee from the presence of God? And so he says, maybe I go, no, I go to heaven, he's there. I thought, well, if I descend into, well, if I go into shell, you know, everywhere I go. Well, maybe if I could cover myself with darkness, even the darkness is like the light of day to you. Even in his hours and days of wanting to flee from the presence of God, he cannot do so. That's, that's perhaps to me one of the most profound things about the presence of God in my life. That, that even in my Darkest hours spiritually, when I really am fed up with God and I'm fed up with what God is doing in my life and I'm fed up with how He's not answering my prayers and He's not doing the things I want Him to do and I just assume He'd leave me alone. He will not leave me alone. I know that because I've asked Him to leave me alone. I've told God, I've said, God, I can't handle this. This is more than I can handle. And if this is your training program on my life, I'm not interested. 
And I've told him that. But I cannot flee from his presence. So, so here we are. We're believers. We have the presence of God with us. And everywhere we go, even when we're in our sourest mood and in our darkest frame of mind, God is present with us. And so we have this theophany, if you will, where Jacob and Joseph come together because we have these two guys. One guy who has lived a lot like the psalmist in 139, you know, and, you know, he's, he's not done real well always in his life. And yet God has been present with him. And these two men now come together and it becomes a theophany to us. It becomes a display of God to us. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking... As, as believers, you and I, people who, who every moment of our lives, because of the promise of the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, every moment of our lives walk in the presence of God, what is it like when you and I come together? Oftentimes, when two Christians get together, it's anything but a theophany, right? <laughs> Oftentimes, when two Christians come together, it's sparks and fire and conflict and... and Arguments and hard feelings and bitterness and, you know. But that is not the way God intends it to be. What if the first thing I did when I encountered another believer and maybe a believer with whom I've had some conflict or I have some disagreement, theological or otherwise, what if the first thing I, I thought about when I came together with them was I thought, the Spirit of God is there with them and the Spirit of God is me. With me. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you all before, but but in my teaching, one of my primary philosophies of teaching the Scripture to you people is that I operate on the assumption that I'm not teaching I'm not talking to you. I operate on the assumption that I'm talking to the Spirit of God in you. That's my philosophy. Because if I'm just talking to you, no telling what's going to happen. But if by the grace of God, I am able to say something of what God is saying, and if I'm able to say that to the Spirit that's in you, then I know something good will come of that. So I try to look past just you people. And I try to look at the Spirit of God in you. And I try to do that consistently, Sunday after Sunday. Unfortunately, I don't always do that when I'm around other people, other believers. But what if every time I was around another believer... I looked at them as somebody with whom God was present. And I treated them like that. And I talked to them like that. Would it not be like a theophany? Isn't that exactly what Jesus said? He says, he says they will know you are my disciples if you what? love one another. Jesus says, you people come together and you love one another and it's going to be obvious 
God is going to reveal Himself. Well, so it's uh, so we have this little theophany, if you will, between Joseph and and Jacob, and then Joseph goes into his uh, description of what they are to do when they appear before Pharaoh. And next week we'll actually get into that interaction that they have with Pharaoh. But I just briefly want to point out to you. When Joseph gives instructions to his family, when he says what he's going to tell Pharaoh, and he gives instructions to what they're to tell Pharaoh, what does he tell them? What are you to tell Pharaoh? We're shepherds because shepherds are spies. Okay. He wants Pharaoh, who's an Egyptian, to know this family, this whole family and their fathers before them have all been keepers of livestock and shepherds. What? Just well, but in the verse before that, he says, I'm going to tell him you're shepherds. And he says, I'm going to go to Pharaoh. He says, I'm going to tell him you're shepherds and keepers of livestock. And when you come before him, you tell him you're keepers of livestock. Now, what I thought, what I thought oftentimes when I've read this in the past is I thought, he was trying to conceal the fact that they're shepherds. But he's not trying to conceal that fact. Obviously, he tells them they're shepherds. Now, the text puts the emphasis on shepherds being loathsome to the Egyptians. But in reality, all keepers of livestock were loathsome to the Egyptians. The keepers of camels and donkeys and cattle. They were all loathsome to the Egyptians. Don't ask me why. You know, they were basically an agrarian people. They grew crops and stuff. I don't know what it was. I don't know what their hang-up is. I don't know why people decide that other people are of a lower caste than them. You know, there's nothing rational in that, of course. So I don't know why the Egyptians felt that way about the keepers of livestock and about keeping about shepherds in particular. But what Joseph wants to do is he wants to make an issue with Pharaoh. That we are shepherds and keepers of livestock. We've always done it. Our fathers have done it before us. We've brought our flocks and herds with us and we're intending to do it now. What is Joseph trying to pull off here? He's trying to get him to Goshen. <laughs> He'd already made the promise, I'll give you Goshen, the best of the land. He had a plan for doing that. And the plan was to accentuate to the Egyptians that these people are shepherds so that the Egyptians will want them to go off by themselves and live by themselves over here in the best of the land. The land that's suitable for raising their livestock and their sheep. And what strikes me here is that, is that Joseph is exploiting the prejudices of the Egyptians for the advantage and the security of his family. All right? He wants them to have the land of Goshen because it's the best of the land, but he's also wanting them to be separate. Because Joseph has now lived in Egypt for 22 years, and he knows the lure of Egypt. And now he sees his brothers coming down and his brothers' children. And Joseph is thinking. We've got to maintain, if we're going to be a holy people, we've got to maintain separation. And so this is actually the fulfillment of the thing we've talked about before. We've been talking about this from clear back in chapter 38. 
that God's purpose in bringing the children of Israel to Egypt, one of his purposes in bringing the children of Israel to Egypt, was because when they were in Canaan, they were beginning to intermingle with the Canaanites. Judah is the classic example there in chapter 38. He moved away from his family. He married a Canaanite woman. He got a Canaanite friend. And that led to the whole thing with Tamar. And, and what we saw is the family was beginning to intermingle. And after 400 years, if they had stayed in Canaan, there would no longer have been an Israel. There would no longer have been a holy nation or a royal priesthood. There wouldn't have been any of that. And so God sent them to Egypt to live in a land where they are despised so that they will be separate. And ultimately to live in a land where they are slaves for 400 years so that He can keep them separate to Himself. How jealous is our God of our love and our affection that He would send us into slavery for 400 years in order that we might just be true to Him. You know, we, we just don't think of slavery as a, as a nice thing, do we? <laughs> we just, you know, and particularly in our day and age, we don't think of it as a nice thing. And it is not a nice thing. And those 400 years were 400 years of suffering. But it was not 400 years of suffering without a purpose. Nor was it 400 years of suffering without God's presence. But as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, does not God allow us as individuals, each one of us, to go through very hard circumstances, sometimes for years upon years upon years upon years, in spite of our repeated cries to Him to change our circumstances? You know, there have been times when I told God, God, I can't take another day of this. And I'm sure every one of you have prayed the same prayer at some time in reference to something. And we cannot understand why God does not answer our prayers. Why doesn't He change this circumstance? Is He mad at me? Is He punishing me for something? But God allows Egypt to go, or Israel to go through these 400 years of slavery because He wants to keep them separate so that He can affect His plan of redemption for the whole world through this nation which He is creating. A holy nation and a royal priesthood. And then I realize that some of the things that God has allowed in my life and some of the things that God has allowed in your life that have gone on and on and on and on and on are the very things that God is using to keep us close to Himself. Well, 
sometimes the hyper-spiritualized way to think about that is, oh, okay, well, then it's not suffering. Because, you know, God is doing so, you know, I should just be glad in this. And, you know, and it's really not, you know. It is suffering, folks. 400 years of slavery was suffering. The children of Israel were crying out to God for 400 years. It is suffering. But sometimes it's not just the circumstance, such as the separation. It's not just the circumstance which is keeping us close to God. Sometimes it is the suffering itself that's keeping us close to God. Sometimes it's the pain itself that's keeping us close to God. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, but how many times have I in my pain and in my suffering sinned? Because I am so fed up with the pain and so fed up with the suffering. So I get mad at God and I say things to God or I get mad at my wife or I get mad at my kids or I get mad at my situation. And so I get angry and I sin. And God, how is this keeping me from sin? And, And then he says to me, you don't know what greater sins I've kept you from. Because I have allowed you to suffer this blow these many years. And so God sends Israel into Egypt and it baffles us and it baffles the Egyptians. But when God brings, or the Israelites, but when God brings them out 400 years later, brings them out in glory the way He does in majesty and displays His majesty at Sinai and then leads them by a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire through the wilderness and says, I have raised you up as a nation for my glory and I'm going to display my glory to the nations. Then it all begins to make sense. But some of the things that you and I are going through or have gone through in our lives, we will not be able to make sense of until He leads us out in glory. So, in that time, until that time, We just need to walk by faith. We need to be faithful to Him. And we need to say, Lord, whatever You're doing, whatever You're doing, and whatever You're not doing, just keep me close to You. Okay, well, next week we'll go on and see their encounter with Pharaoh.